The New Testament reading for today will be 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. And the Old Testament reading will be Exodus 17, 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, and Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Uh, this 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14 passage has been mentioned uh, many times over the past few weeks. It really is helpful, I think, for us to understand what was going on at the time of the Exodus as Paul has some of these events that we are now considering in mind as he writes to the Corinthian church. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Paul to the Corinthians, he wrote, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let us now go to the reading of our sermon text for today, Exodus 17. Verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. 
And because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it today. You know, as we consider this text, I think it is right for us to sympathize with Israel a little. Um, obviously, we'll eventually come to critique them for, for their grumbling and for their lack of faith. Uh, the text does certainly draw our attention to these failings. The Apostle Paul does the same thing in his letter to the Corinthians. The failings of Israel are there emphasized, and we are exhorted by the Apostle to not do as they did when they grumbled against the Lord in the wilderness. When I say that we should sympathize with Israel, I mean that it is helpful for us to acknowledge the difficulty of their situation. Their situation was very difficult. Wouldn't you agree with that? Life in Egypt was all these people had known. They were slaves there and now they were free. Everything was new to them. And when the Lord led them out of Egypt, he led them into a very challenging place. They did not go immediately into a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, the Lord led them into the wilderness to be tested there, to be trained there. We need to acknowledge that. We need to see uh, that their situation was, in fact, very difficult, very challenging. And I do want to say to you that this was the mercy of God. That might sound like a very strange thing to say. I've just described how challenging the circumstance was, and I say this was the mercy of God. But it is true. God in His grace, led Israel into the wilderness to test them and to train them there. You and I know this to be true. No testing is pleasant in the moment. But as you look back upon it, you can see the blessing in it. I think you would agree with me about that. You can see the grace of God in the trial. You can see the growth that came from it. You can see the refinement that took place. I've experienced this. I trust that you've experienced it as well. And I'm saying that that sort of thing was going on with Israel in the wilderness. Israel was tested by God there. It's right for us to acknowledge the severity of the test, though. They were sojourning in a very desolate, a very dry, and a very thirsty land. I don't know if you've ever driven out the 10 freeway towards Arizona. Um, You know, you you get into the Palm Springs region, and you go further... um, it's really beautiful out in the desert in, in its own way. You know, you keep going further and, and, and you just are in the middle of this expansive desert region. And I've driven that road before and I've thought, can you imagine traveling through this land ages ago, you know, on horseback perhaps or on foot, uh, no water in sight. It would have been a very scary place to go. That's the kind of region that Israel was in, a, a desolate region, a dry and thirsty land. Now, Their claim in the previous passage that they were about to starve to death was a bit overblown. I addressed that in the previous sermon. They still had flocks. And we learned that really they grumbled against God, being driven by their cravings. It wasn't so much about needs but wants. Uh, The Psalms speak to this issue. But here we are told that Israel ran out of water again. Sure, they carried water with them when they left the springs of Marah, but it was about gone And there were no water sources in sight. And I'm simply acknowledging that that would have been a terrifying experience. Do you agree with me? I can picture this, and I'm sure that you can too. A great multitude in this vast region, not a green thing in sight. They're out of water. They began to panic. It would have been terrifying. We know that a person could live without food for weeks. A person could go without water only for a very short time, a couple of days, especially in a harsh environment such as the one the Israelites were in. And we should remember that there were not one or two men sojourning in this great and vast wilderness, 
but a multitude of men, women, and children, along with their flocks. And so if water was not found quickly, there would have been a tremendous loss of life. I don't think it is helpful to minimize the severity of their situation. This was a true test of Israel's faith. And I think it is right for us to put ourselves there in their shoes and even to attempt to think and feel what they would have thought and felt. Their error was not that they were deeply concerned. That's really the point that I'm trying to make here. Their error was not that they were deeply concerned. It was not even that they were anxious about their situation or perplexed or afraid. Instead, we are to see that their error was in their response. What did they do? They began to grumble and complain against God. They panicked in this moment. They didn't think of God. They looked at their situation and they forgot Him. Their error was not that they were deeply concerned, anxious, or perplexed. Their error was in their response. They grumbled against God again. They were so worked up about their situation that Moses felt as if he was about to be stoned to death by them. That's that's what's going on. These people are working themselves up into a frenzy, being driven by their panic. They were about to put Moses to death. And so I'm saying that their concerns were understandable. A rational human being would be concerned and even worried about the lack of water in a situation like that. But the trouble was in the way that they responded to this situation. These people should have known better by now. Don't you agree with me? Think of their history, their immediate history. They should have known better. They should have known better for the Lord had given these people His word. Promises were made to their forefathers. And even more recently, the Lord spoke to them through Moses. The the declared will of the Lord was to bring them out of Egypt and to the land that was promised to them. And more than this, the Lord had proven Himself faithful. He proved Himself faithful in the days of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He proved Himself faithful during Israel's stay in Egypt. And very recently, He had proven Himself faithful in the outpouring of the plagues on the Egyptians and by the deliverance of the Hebrews through the Red Sea. All of this, some of this at least, was immediate history. And they forgot it so quickly. Was the trial severe? Yes, it was. It was a very dire situation. But Israel was called by the Lord to walk by faith. Israel was called by the Lord to trust in the Lord. The Lord had proven Himself faithful. The Lord had proven Himself able. And here Israel is found failing a test yet again. They were tested concerning the provision of water. They were tested concerning the provision of food. And now they're tested concerning the provision of water again We are to see that God supplied them with what they needed in the first two instances. And here they are back again, being tested once more. And what do they do? They grumble again. And sometimes we are slow learners, aren't you? Wouldn't you agree with me about that, brothers and sisters? Sometimes we are slow learners. The Lord must teach us a lesson over and over again until we finally get it. But God is patient with His people. What can we learn from this story Uh, That is before us today. First of all, we must see that Christian sojourners must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Christian sojourners must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. You've heard that expression before, haven't you? That we are to walk by faith and not by sight. It actually comes from 2 Corinthians 5-7 where Paul says... So we, speaking of himself and his traveling companions, other Christians, so we are always of good courage. 
we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, and Paul continues from there. But he says, we are of good courage, because we walk by faith, not by sight. When Paul speaks of walking, he speaks metaphorically of of the way in which a person lives their life. In particular, in this passage, he is concerned to address the guiding force of, of one's life. All who live do walk. And the question is, what will inform our walking? What will motivate us to walk in the way that we do? What will drive us? And Paul states that he and his companions walked as they did because they walked by faith and not by sight. They were driven along, moved along by faith and not by sight. To walk by sight is to have our thoughts, our words, and our actions motivated only or ultimately by what we see with our natural eyes and by what we perceive with our natural reason. That is what it means to walk by sight. What do I think? What do I feel? What do I say? What do I do? All of that is going to be driven by something, and the person who walks by sight is going to be driven along, moved along by what they see with their natural eyes, what they perceive with their natural reason. This is what Israel did when they were about out of water in the wilderness. The people looked at their empty water vessels. They looked out upon the barren landscape. What did they see with their eyes? They saw a desolate landscape. They saw no green thing, and their hearts were filled with terror as a result. And they looked at Moses with anger in their hearts, and they thought to do him harm. And as they began to grumble and complain against against him with their lips as well, The people of Israel, they thought, they spoke, and they prepared to act, being driven by what they saw with their natural eyes only. They were walking by sight. But to walk by faith means that we are driven along, not by what we see with our natural eyes or perceive with our natural reason, but what we see with our eyes of faith. To walk by faith does not mean that we must ignore what we see with our natural eyes and perceive with our natural reason. Don't you think that's an important statement to make, brothers and sisters? Walking by faith does not mean that we close our physical eyes and ignore the reality of the world around us. Maybe that's why I felt so compelled to to first sympathize with Israel's experience. Those who walk by faith must still have eyes wide open concerning the reality of the world in which they live um, because... What we see with our natural eyes does certainly matter. But God's people, as they perceive the world around them, as they sojourn in this world, must learn to think and to feel and to speak and act, not based upon what they see with their natural eyes ultimately, but but by what they know to be true according to faith. This is something that we we must learn to do. We must learn to take something else into consideration as we perceive the world around us. We may, must look to take, learn to take something else into consideration as we, 
as we observe our own circumstances, as dire as they may be, we cannot respond to those circumstances based upon only what we see with our eyes. We must take something else into our consideration as we begin to to think and to feel and to speak and to do. This is what it means to, to walk by faith. We must give priority to other things, namely God and what He has said to us in His most holy word. The, the Hebrews perceived that they were in danger in the wilderness. Their water vessels were about empty and there was no water source inside. All of this was true and it was a big and serious problem that needed to be addressed by them. Where did they go wrong then? Where did they go wrong? They failed to bring God and His Word into the equation. They panicked. They acted in an impulsive manner. They began to think, feel, speak, and do according to only what they saw with their natural eyes. They failed to bring God and His Word into the equation. And as I've already said, the Lord had spoken to them. He spoke to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He entrusted them with precious and very great promises. More than that, He recently spoke to them through Moses and proved Himself powerful and present and faithful through the plagues and the working of their deliverance from Egypt. Israel's error was that they thought, felt, spoke, and acted based only upon what they saw with their natural eyes. They walked by sight and not by faith. And here I am saying that Christian sojourners must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. Brothers and sisters, are you walking by faith? Are you being driven to think, feel, speak, and act not only by what you see with your natural eyes, but by what you know to be true because God has spoken. If we wish to walk faithfully in this world in a way that will count for all eternity and in a way that will bring glory to God, then we must learn to walk by faith. I keep emphasizing that word learn because it is a process, isn't it? Our natural inclination is to walk by sight, but in Christ we must learn to walk by faith. We must learn to bring God's word into the equation as we perceive and interpret the world around us. And when I say that we are to bring God's word into the equation, I do not mean that we are to set it alongside our natural perception of things and of our natural reason as if um, they were of equal weight and worth. Are you tracking with me here? We're not to set what God has said alongside our natural perception of things. No, in fact, God's word is to permeate and is to inform our perception of the world around us and our lives in it. We are to allow God's word to permeate our minds and hearts so that as we see the world, we see it differently now through eyes of faith. The word of God has shaped us and molded us in such a way that we perceive the world around us differently. And and I can hear the voices of our critics even now. They say, If these Christians do what this man is saying, then they will not live according to reality. They will be living in a fantasy land. If they do in fact perceive the world through the lenses of God's revelation, the Bible, then everything that they see in the world will be perceived as having an unnatural hue to it. Can you hear their voices? The voices of our critics or the voices of skeptics? And in response to that, what would we say? We would say no, God's word, God's revelation does not distort our perception of reality, but enables us to see reality with greater vividness and clarity than can be enjoyed without it. You get it? That's the truth of the matter. 
God's word does not distort reality. God's word allows us to see reality for what it is. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that in our natural and fallen state, we are blind to the truth. In our natural and fallen state, our perception of reality is is dim. It is distorted. When the Lord regenerates His people by His word and spirit, He gives them eyes to see. To perceive the world through the lens of God's word does not require the Christian to ignore or detach from reality. Instead, it enables us to see God, the world that He has made, and our lives in it, as they truly are. That is what I mean when I say we must bring God's word into the equation, not to set it alongside our natural perception of things, but we must bring God's word into our mind and heart and allow it to so permeate everything that we are that we perceive the world according to God's truth. We do not close our natural eyes. No, we open them and we see them being informed by what God has said. That is what I mean when I say we must learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We must learn to do this as Christian sojourners. This is a choice that we must make. It will not happen automatically, nor will it come easily. We must make this decision to walk by faith and not by sight. So how do we do it? You know, it's not uncommon to hear a pastor exhort Christians to be in church on the Lord's Day, uh, to pay careful attention to the reading and preaching of the Word of God, to read the Scriptures for themselves, to meditate upon them day by day. And there is a reason why pastors exhort Christians to do this. They are not saying, check the boxes, uh, brothers and sisters. No, they are saying, receive God's Word and receive it deeply. Believe what it says so that you might walk according to the truth contained within. In fact, you cannot walk by faith without God's Word. God has spoken And to walk by faith means that we walk in this world according to what He has said to us. God's Word illuminates the reality of things. God's Word allows us to see the world and all of our circumstances in it as they truly are. For the Hebrews, they perceived with their natural eyes that their situation was dire. But they failed to perceive their situation with eyes of faith. They forgot God's promises to them. They forgot God's word. They lost sight of the reality of His presence, His power, and His faithfulness. And so they responded to their situation as they did, with grumbling, with complaining, with rebelliousness. And so how will it be for us, brothers and sisters? How will we do in the heat of the moment when faced with the trials and tribulations of life? How will we fare when we are tested If we hope to walk by faith and not by sight, we had better know God's word. We had better have it treasured up and stored up in our hearts. We had better learn to see the world in our lives and it through the lens of God's revelation. Christian sojourners must walk by faith, not by sight. And somewhat connected to this, Christian sojourners must be driven by the word of God and the spirit of God, not by their passions and cravings. That is the second point of the sermon for for today. And I'll spend less time developing this second point because it truly is a subset of the first. Uh, To walk by faith and not by sight requires that we learn to be moved, not by our worldly passions and cravings, but by God's word and by God's spirit. Passion is celebrated in our culture. And if by passion 
We mean that someone cares deeply about something, is devoted to that thing, works hard at that thing, and is even noticeably excited about that thing. I do not necessarily have a problem with that at all. In this sense, it is not wrong to be passionate about your work or passionate about your family, etc. But taken in another sense, passion can be a big problem. The word may also be used to describe a person who is driven by their cravings, a person who is driven by their emotions. Used in this way, passionate people lack self-control. They are impetuous. They think little before speaking and acting. They may think of themselves as being most free in this state, but they do not know that in fact um, they are in bondage to something. What are they in bondage to? As passionate people who, who act impetuously, who just say the first thing that comes to their mind and do whatever their craving drives them to do. What are these people in bondage to? Not the opinions of others, not the constraints of culture. Uh, Yes, there is freedom in that regard, but what are they in bondage to? They're in fact slaves to their own emotions. They are driven this way and that by their cravings. The man who is given to the passion of anger, for example, is not free. He is a slave. And on and on we could go. And using the word in this way, I say that Christian sojourners must not celebrate passion as if it were a virtue, but rather we must celebrate self-control. Instead, the one who has self-control will not be driven to think, speak, and do by their appetites or by what they experience in the world around them. Instead, they'll be driven to do and to say and to even think by what they know to be right and true in their mind and their heart. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Would you listen to Proverbs 25, 28? A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I want you to think about that imagery for just a moment. This isn't a sermon on Proverbs 25, 28, but this is beautiful imagery here. Again, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, a man without self-control A man without the ability to control his appetites, his passions, his cravings. A man without this ability to to do based upon what he knows to be true is like a city that's been overrun and is left without walls, that is left exposed to to, to threats from outside. A man without self-control is constantly overrun, is defeated and exposed to every danger. By what? In the proverb we must say, Uh, This man without self-control is overrun and exposed to the danger of the enemy without and also the enemy within. The temptations of the world overrun him constantly. Uh, The lack of self-control in his own mind and heart uh, does him harm and not good. I want you to listen also to Peter. He wrote to Christian sojourner saying, For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a very beautiful and important passage. Peter urges us to make every effort to add these qualities to the faith that we have. In other words, I might ask you, Do you have faith in Christ? Do you have sincere faith in Christ? And if you were to respond with the answer, yes, I would say, 
That is wonderful. That is great. Indeed, that is the main thing. This is the means by which we come to have the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life eternal. It is through faith in Christ that we come to be saved. But what what Peter is saying to us is, do not stop there with faith, with bare faith, with immature faith. But instead, add to your faith. And what are we to add to it? Things like virtue, knowledge, self-control steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Do we earn our salvation, brothers and sisters, by adding these things to our faith? That is not what Peter is teaching at all. But rather he's describing to us growth in faith. Faith is the thing, that the instrument by which we come to be saved. Yes, but don't stop there. Add these qualities to your faith. And then Peter again says, if these qualities are ours and increasing, they keep us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice that Peter mentions self-control right at the heart of these qualities that he's listed. Self-control, biblically speaking, is not only the ability to be calm, cool, and collected under pressure. Instead, It is the ability to think, speak, and act carefully according to the Word of God, being led by the Spirit of God. In other words, we are not merely pursuing a calm and docile disposition. Instead, we are seeking as God's people to be governed, to be driven by God's Word and God's Spirit in each and every circumstance. Did you listen to Paul in Galatians 5, 19 through 24? Another long passage, but one that speaks very beautifully to this issue. Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, here's what the flesh will produce. Here's what your natural and sinful cravings and desires will produce. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's quite a list, isn't it? But here's where your flesh will lead you, your your sinful flesh. I warn you, the apostle says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is Paul here teaching us? He's saying that you're going to be driven by something as you sojourn in this world. You're going to be driven either by the passions and desires of your flesh, here's what that produces, or you are going to be driven by something else, namely the Spirit of God, the Word of God. And he's urging Christians to to be driven by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. It's another way of addressing this issue of walking by faith and not by sight. And and the point that I'm here trying to make, that we must learn to be driven by, by God's Word and Spirit and not the passions of the flesh. You say, okay, all well and good, but what does this have to do with Exodus 17, right? Well, as we consider Israel in the wilderness, we see that this people, generally speaking, they were driven not by faith, not by the Word of God or the Spirit of God, but by their passions over and over again. They were moved to think, speak, and act 
by their cravings, and by their emotions. And I've already acknowledged that their anxiety was very natural. It was natural for them to feel that emotion, um, given their experience. I'm not critiquing them for that. Instead, the problem was that they allowed themselves to be driven by those emotions. In other words, they lacked the self-control that is commanded of us in, in the pages of Holy Scripture. Let me read now a little portion from Psalm 106 to show you that this was the case. The psalmist was reflecting on the history of Israel and on their wilderness wanderings when he wrote this. Both we and our fathers have sinned, the psalmist says. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, so speaking of those who lived long before him, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. That's a reference to the song of Moses that we considered not too long ago in Exodus 15. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. That's fascinating to me. The Psalms here, Psalm 106, uh, is re- it's reflecting upon Israel's experience in the wilderness and, and it's critiquing it. It's analyzing what, what it was that they were doing. What was their issue? These, these people were so quick to forget the Lord's word. They didn't wait upon the Lord. They they forgot what He had said in the past. They forgot His faithfulness. They forgot His presence. And they were driven along to do what they did, to say what they said, to think what they thought by their wanton cravings. That's what Psalm 106 says. They're being driven by these things. And brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you that this is the way of the natural man. This is the way of the natural man. What else will men and women be driven by if they are not born of God's word and spirit except their wanton cravings? The only thing that can drive them is their natural desire. And this would not be a problem if the desires of men were pure. But they are not pure, for we have fallen into sin. Instead of desiring the glory of God and obedience to His moral law, men and women do by nature seek their own glory and are drawn to do that which is unholy and profane. But those who have faith in Christ have been born of God's word and spirit. We are to be governed, we're to be driven to think, feel, say, and do, not by our natural and sinful passions, but by the word of God and by the spirit of God. Here's the trouble. Those who have been born again by God's word and spirit sojourn in a fallen and sinful world. This is the world in which we live, a world that is filled with with sin still. And therefore, there are temptations all around us. And though it is true that we have been born again by God's Word and Spirit, it is also true that corruptions remain in us. The flesh wars against the Spirit. We are often tempted, even by the desires within us, to think, feel, say, and do that which is evil. And so, there is a battle A battle that rages outside of us and even a battle that rages within us. It is a daily and momentary battle. 
And this is why Paul exhorts Christians saying, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All of this, brothers and sisters, takes work. It takes thoughtfulness. We have to walk with care in this world if we are to walk in a manner that is worthy, if we are to walk by faith and not by sight. It's not going to come automatic. In fact, if we forget these things and if we just coast, we're going to stumble, we're going to fall. The third and final point of the sermon today is this. Christian sojourners must find their satisfaction in God and in Christ. I've not left myself too much time to develop this point. It it really does deserve more. It's key. But again, I say Christian sojourners must find their satisfaction in God and in Christ. It is quite natural and, and not at all evil for humans to long for satisfaction. Have you ever thought of that? We do have this longing for satisfaction. We, we long to be comforted. We long to be filled. That desire within us is, is not an evil desire. Now, the real question is, where will we find this satisfaction? Where will we find it? I suppose we may speak of man's fall into sin in these terms. Adam was to find his satisfaction where? He was to find his satisfaction there in the garden before sin entered into the world. He was to find it in God, in giving glory to God, in living in perpetual and perfect obedience to God and His commandments. But what did he do? He listened to a lie. He listened to the voice of the evil one who claimed that he would be more satisfied if he would live for his own glory and decide for himself what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. The serpent is a liar, brothers and sisters. He was a liar in the beginning and he is a liar to this present day. And what was the lie that he told in the beginning? The same one that he tells even now. Satisfaction, true satisfaction is found not in God, but in this world and in the things of this world. Pay no attention to what God has said, says the evil one. He's a killjoy, right? That's the impression he wants to give. Live for yourself. Live for your own glory. Decide for yourself what is right and wrong, good and evil. Indulge in the passions of the flesh. That is where true satisfaction is found. And those who listen will soon learn the same lesson that Adam learned. Truly the wages of sin is death. This impulse that we have within us to be satisfied is not evil. In fact, it is a very good impulse. It's meant to drive us where, brothers and sisters? It's meant to drive us to our Creator and now to our Redeemer in whom true satisfaction is found. We were made for Him. We are to find our satisfaction in Him. Pay careful attention to the lessons that the Lord taught Israel in the wilderness. To me, this is so fascinating. These lessons were for them. They were also for us. There's a theme developing here in the Exodus story. Many within Israel had their eyes fixed only on the earth and on the things of this earth. They craved water. They craved food. And the Lord provided these things for them, for He is faithful. But notice that He provided these necessities of life for them in such a way so as to communicate to them that true satisfaction is to be found in Him. Think of it. Follow along with me, friends. This is so key. Pay careful attention to the way in which the Lord provided for the natural needs of the Hebrews. 
The way he did it is significant. He could have led them anywhere. He could have led them straight to the land flowing with milk and honey. He could have led them in a way where there were natural springs of water all over the place and an abundance of resources so that they could harvest their food you know, as they sojourned. Where did he lead them, though? Out into the desert wilderness, a barren land where there was no water, where there was no food naturally present for them, at least not such that could support such a great multitude. He led them there, and he provided for their natural needs in a very particular way. He, he led them into the wilderness where there were no natural springs or, or food sources available for them, but he gave them bread to eat supernaturally, so as to communicate to them, as he satisfied their physical hunger, that, that he, the Lord, was to be their true satisfaction, their true source of, of nourishment, of life. He did it in this way so as to teach them uh, this beautiful message. And, and so too, the water that Israel drank f- from the rock that was provided for them supernaturally was to communicate to them that God was interested in providing not only for their physical thirst, but also for the thirst of the soul as well. That is the message that is being communicated. Here, yes, I will provide you with the water that you need and and the food that you need, but you need to see for certain that all of this comes from me. I am the source. I am the Lord who will meet your every need. Physical needs, yes, but spiritual needs too. He was also communicating to Israel that he would provide for all of their needs by sending the Christ. And and this might sound far-fetched to you, um, but I want you to remember the word of God and the promises of God that had been given to the Hebrews long before. Do not forget them. When the bread fell from heaven and the water gushed from the rock, It came from the Lord who had spoken to the Hebrews previously. This people here that we are considering, these people were entrusted with the word of God. They knew um, for themselves what is now recorded for us in the pages of Genesis. They knew about creation. They knew about the fall. They knew about God's plan of redemption. They knew of the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning the land and the nation. They also knew about the promises concerning the Christ. One would arise from amongst them who would bless the nations, who would deal with the problem of sin and death that came into the world through Adam. This word that we now have in writing in the pages of Genesis was entrusted to them. They knew this story, or at least they should have. They understood these promises, or at least some of them did. So they had at their disposal the information they needed to understand that the bread from heaven was not just to meet their physical hunger and the water from the rock was not just to meet their physical thirst. No, they were being called to run to God, their creator and redeemer, to trust in him for all things temporal and eternal and to find their satisfaction in him now and for all eternity. They were called as are we to feast and drink of God and of His Christ by faith. That is what Paul says explicitly in that 1 Corinthians 10 passage that we have read. I'll admit that not all Israel understood this. In fact, many must have remained ignorant. Look at how they, look at how they responded as a group. But some knew. The Lord always has a remnant. And when Christ and His apostles look back upon these Exodus events and the wilderness wanderings, they, they knew that this was their true meaning. Christ was present there with them in the bread 
and in the rock that gushed forth water for this thirsty people. Listen to the interpretation that Jesus Christ Himself gave of this passage. Jesus spoke to those who had followed Him into the wilderness, who had eaten the bread that was multiplied. Please just make the connection on your own between these two events, right? A multitude followed Jesus into the wilderness. They were hungry and He fed them by multiplying loaves of bread. This is what He said to them, though, after they followed Him further. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you hear the message that Jesus is pro- uh, proclaiming to that, 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 that multitude of people? He's saying, this bread that was provided for you through Moses for your forefathers in the wilderness, and this water that was provided for you from the rock when Moses struck it according to the command of God, it was about so much more than food and drink. In fact, this great multitude was being called to, to drink of me and to eat of me, and the satisfaction that I will give will last not for a moment, but for all eternity. Again, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they ate of the same spiritual food. What a, what a strange way to speak of, not spiritual food, but physical food. Manna and water. But Paul calls it spiritual food. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. So when we consider all that God was doing amongst the Hebrews, going even back to the days of Abraham and the promises that were entrusted to him concerning a Messiah, we are to see that God provided for the physical needs of the people in the wilderness in such a way so as to communicate to them that I, the Lord, am to be your satisfaction. I am the source of life. And indeed, you already know, Hebrews, I will provide a Messiah, a Christ, a Savior who will meet all of your needs that you have spiritually because of your fall into sin. Israel was being called by these external means to walk by faith and not by sight, to be driven not by their passions and cravings, but by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and to find their satisfaction not in the things of this earth, but in God and the Christ who was promised to them. And Paul reminds us now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Let us bow now for prayer. Father in heaven, help us to walk worthy before you in this world. Strengthen us to walk by faith and not by sight. Change us inwardly so that we are driven not by sinful passions, but by your word and your spirit. Sanctify us further so that we find our satisfaction our true satisfaction, not in earthly and temporal things, but in you, O God, and in Christ, who has redeemed us by his shed blood. And all of God's people say, Amen.